2: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast Conversations that Satisfy Your Curious Mind. Chris Stemp here. Look, I got to tell you, I feel like I'm in rare form today. I just got done with my interview, and you're going to notice a little bit of that passion come out in me. At the same time, you're going to notice me change my opinions or beliefs on the fly a little bit. And, and I say on the fly, not as a negative. I actually think more people need to be willing to change opinions when presented with different information or better opinions, hence why we do this show. In the same vein, we had both a discussion before the interview and after the interview, and our guest this week said, Chris, you need a libertarian on the show. And I do. I mean, I pride myself in looking at various viewpoints. So there's two things I'm asking here. One, if you have a different viewpoint, please don't shy away from that. I want to hear from you. I want to learn about this topic. I mean, it seems you'll hear me say multiple times in this interview, like, doesn't everyone think that? But I know that that's a myopic view that doesn't serve me. So if you feel differently, shoot me an email, chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you have somebody else we should interview on this topic that feels differently, chris at smartpeople.com. If you love the content we're bringing, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. See what I just did there? See that that plug in there? That's the entrepreneur in me. Anyway, on the show this week, we interview Mael Gavi. I think I pronounced that right. Mael is one of the tech industry's brightest stars. Named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. One of Fortune's 40 Under 40. One of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. The list goes on and on. CEO of the quote-unquote Amazon of Russia. Principal at BCG. VP of Ops at Priceline. Priceline. Look, she's in tech. She knows tech. It's great. And why tech? Well, because her new book is called Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. We are talking about how technology has gotten to a point where it is not serving us. It's become too big. There's too many problems. Might it need government intervention? Does that make you a socialist? I don't know. We'll find out. The last thing... I just want to highlight is you'll hear me start off the interview mentioning the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Also a huge fan of that. Check it out. Let me know what you think. All right. Here it is. Our interview with Mile Gavey about her new book, Trampled by Unicorns. Enjoy. Well, let's do this thing, Mile. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show.
1: My pleasure. Very excited to be here.
2: Well, and I was just telling you, I'm really excited to have you on because specifically one of the things that's forefront of my mind right now, I recently watched The Social Dilemma and I have some thoughts. I actually have a lot of thoughts. Usually I'm just the question asker, but when it comes to something like that documentary, I feel, I, I don't know. I feel like it needs to be out there. I feel like we need to discuss it with experts. I'm not saying I have the answer. So let's start here. Have you seen it? What are your reactions from a from a you know Silicon Valley insider? What do you think about it?
1: So yes, I have absolutely seen it. Uh, actually, I'm I'm uh, I'm a friend with one of the one of the people interviewed in the documentary. His name is Aza Raskin. He's actually interviewed in my book. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of what him and Tristan Harris are doing with the Center for Human Technology, which is really at the center of this documentary. Um, so I found the documentary really good. Uh, I think it's, it's great at exposing some of the fundamental problems that uh, are baked into the DNA of social networks, um, and I think it's really good because it does it in a very accessible way. Um, the list of speakers is very impressive. I wish there was a tiny bit more diversity, but I think it does reflect, uh, unfortunately, the way the tech industry in general uh, is is uh, is structured. So it's a lot of white men. Um, so uh, when you look at the list, I think these are really, really impressive, uh, experienced tech experts. Um, I think the dramatization scenes may not be for everyone's Taste, um, but I think they make these problems more easily understandable, more real, um, more gripping for people who are not part of the industry. So everyone that I've talked to, who is not a tech uh, employee or tech executive, uh, talked to me about how that left an impression, like how they 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 watched this whole documentary and then they, they kept thinking about it. And so I, I think that the dramatization scene. Scenes are actually really, uh, really useful from that perspective, and I think in general it, it is good for the education of non-tech people. Having mm-hmm. said that, um, I think so. They've done a they've done an amazing job at uh, exploring the problems and where they're coming from and the way social media are basically structured uh, in a way that leads to the the results that or the problems that they're talking about. I wish. I wish they had spent a little more time talking about, uh, solutions, right. um, because especially given how many experts they were on that documentary, I, I wish it was basically like my book. Like I tried to do like half problems, half solutions, so like half talking about how we got where we are. And then half, uh, about how do we solve all these problems. I wish they had managed to do that too. Um, look, this was very likely an editorial choice. Um, because I think it's easier in a way to communicate problems than, than really have in-depth conversation about solutions and none of the solutions are very easy. So I I understand that. And then I think that there is, um, uh, there's an overarching question that I would have loved to see debated, especially again, given the caliber of people on the, on this documentary, which was like, what type of technology do we want overall and, and how, this impacts the type of society we want as a result. Um, I, I really believe that we need to combine capitalist entrepreneurship and state intervention, at least in democratically elected governments. But I, at time it felt like when I was watching the documentary, it felt like what was advocated was some kind of nostalgic return to this mythical time when tech was somehow force for good and, and, um, that that force for good was subverted by, and then you pick your favorite, you know, bad investor, crazy founders, market pressure, hyper-growth, naivety, whatever that is. And so in my view, the issues um, that they're talking about are absolutely real, but they were there from the beginning. Uh, and they were there because of the way the tech industry has pretty much always thought about the world and its problem and what to do with the human component of the equation that they're trying to solve. And so they build pretty much from the ground up products that had this, um, this um, vision of human as a, as a variable that is actually a very inefficient variable in the equation that they're trying to solve. And so to me, the, the, there is no uh, return to this magical mythical time. There is more like an index rethinking of the business model uh, of social networks in particular and tech in general that is required. But bottom line, I think it is a fantastic documentary that has the enormous um, advantage or incredible power to make uh, people who are less familiar with some of the problem with social network very familiar, very aware, and, and very much thinking about it.
2: Yeah, and and when you mention this mythical time, I'm curious, do you refer to that as if it it isn't a thing, it really wasn't there, or do you simply believe there was this magical time, but unfortunately the genie's out of the bottle, there's no there's no use discussing what it used to be like.
1: Um so I think a bit of both. Um I think that the the beginning of the internet, the beginning of uh, a lot of tech companies, was felt, and I wasn't there. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering some of the conversations right, right. that I heard um, from people who were there when that happened, and I think there was this, this, a little naive approach to like we finally invented the 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 borderless. Um universe where anyone is gonna have a voice and everything is gonna be uh is gonna be free and we're gonna be able to exchange information and it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing and the sky's the limit because uh there is very little um the 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 growth is exponential so like you can keep growing almost uh almost endlessly but I think that while this is beautiful and exciting. I think this kind of missed some uh, pretty important things around um, the actual limitation uh, of humanity in general and the internet in particular and so um, I, th- I just think that the there is not there was not. Because it was so new and nobody really knew how it would evolve, I think there was this naivety, which is again beautiful. I think we need more naive people uh, in the world that would make the world such a more beautiful place. But there was a kind of naivety or wonder in front of this amazing thing that was created, and not necessarily um, not necessarily a lot of further thinking about how that would that would develop and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And now right. it's out of the bag. Yes,
2: I'm also wondering for those that haven't seen it, if you and I'm using social media and the social dilemma just as a almost a Trojan horse, but not even more of just a uh, an overall symbol of the tech industry, which we're going to get into and you talk about in your book. But for those that haven't seen it, if you could, in one sentence, describe, you know, what is what would you like the biggest takeaway to be about social in general and its Implication or its impact on humanity? What would it be?
1: I think social media have basically, in a way, put humanity on steroids and it made the good, the bad, and the ugly even more obvious. And then unfortunately, it figured out that the best uh, way to make money out of it um, is by keeping people on the platform longer. And the way to do that is to leverage their weaknesses, which is basically. Um, very strong emotions, uh, mainly outrage, and so the fundamental issue is that um, social media, uh, by connecting humanities, have given indeed a voice to everyone, but then have used, uh, I've used this all these voices, I've used this network that they've created. Mainly to leverage our weaknesses rather than than um, than leveraging our strengths.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking that as you use the steroid analogy, I was thinking, I wonder if social media has made us more human or less human, and we're just realizing it.
1: Um, I don't know if they made us more or less human. They definitely transformed us, and so Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a question of more or less human. Are you more or less human when you're outraged? are you more or less human when you're racist? Are you more or less human when, uh, when you're bullying someone? I don't know. I think it's, it's part of, uh, it's, it's part of our personalities It's just that hopefully, uh, for most of us, this is something that we have, uh, we have, uh, learned to be a bad thing and to go against our fundamental moral values. And like we, we, culture basically has made us uh more empathetic, more friendly, more keen on uh on uh befriending other people. Um right. so I don't know if it's less or more human. It's just as I say it has definitely made us more more emotional, uh more uh more susceptible to being manipulated um more uh more likely to stay within our own echo chamber, um, which are all the things that are not particularly nice about about people. But I think in general, yeah. you know, people are complex. It's not like it's it's not like everybody is is amazing or everybody is horrible. Like most people uh behave in some kind of gray zone that's sometimes a little more black and sometimes a little more white. But like fundamentally, we're we all kind of navigating a gray zone.
2: Well, and I think that's a big part of it. Right. It's created this binary approach to some extent. It's removed so much nuance. I mean, there was discussions about and I think it's Twitter who's going to stop people from sharing articles that they actually haven't opened. Right. And
1: (laughs) that was amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it's just true because we all fall victim to so many different biases and so many things where we just read a headline, it confirms what we already think. And then we, in an outraged way, say the whole world needs to know this without stopping to look at the nuance. I mean, speaking of nuance, right, we're recording this a day after the first presidential debate. And it's just, it's, I I remember sitting there last night going, I don't even want to open Facebook because I don't want to read what anybody has to say, yet I do it anyways. And it's like, we've all agreed to say, this is horrible and i think that's where my frustration with social media with so much of this comes from is like we i feel like so many people have agreed that this is ridiculous this is bad this needs regulation this needs a solution but to your point the 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 size and scale of it all really leads to a um a powerlessness that adds on to all of the other depressing things that happen due to social media or, or the, the steroids that we're on. I don't know. It's just that the lack of nuance, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the, the social networks, again, because their, their business model, we, we have to remember, these are not nonprofit. These are, uh, these are for-profit business, extremely profitable businesses uh, that are public companies and, uh, that need to demonstrate growth quarter after quarter to their public investors. Um, and to do that, they have to bring more and more of us on their platform and they have to make sure that we stay as long as possible. And as I mentioned earlier, what they have figured out, um, pretty rapidly, by the way, is that what makes us do that is, is like extreme, Extreme emotion and extreme emotions are not, by definition, they're not nuanced. They're like the the animal reaction that we're having to right. anything that's in front of us. I, I reread over over the summer, totally by luck. It was just it was on my shelf, and I was it was one of these afternoons. I was like, I need to read something. I reread 1984 from George Orwell. Yes, and I remember I I, I opened it thinking, okay, it's gonna be uh, it's something I haven't read in like 25 years it's i remembered vaguely the big brother big tech analogy and i was like great i it's going to be a good uh refresher and then i read it and i was like as i was turning the pages i was like my god this is so good and so frightening and it goes way beyond just this question of uh, big Brother and the telescreen which can't be switched off and which record every conversation and monitor every movement Th- that I had very much in mind and I, I I understood very very clearly the analogy with the smartphones in our pockets that really basically monitor every single thing we do but what I found significantly more interesting um, at least for having read it for the whatever third or fourth time by now um was two things. One was uh, what Orwell calls the two minutes hate. And the other one was the new language that the party in the book creates. And so the two minutes hate in, in Orwell's novel um, is described as this uh, common um, common moment that every single person um, experience every day so people interrupt their activities every day they stand in front of a big giant screen and then they start celebrating big brother and screaming insults and hate words to the enemy of the day and in the book uh, Orwell explained that the enemy keeps changing but like the fundamental ritual uh, the two minute hate doesn't change and what is really striking when you read that and I really encourage you if you haven't read it in in a long time read it again because this is, this is really a phenomenal book to explain in particular social network in a way. Um, what I find particularly striking is how he described that though this was a compulsory meeting, so you had to go, the party didn't give you a choice, it was impossible once you were there to actually emotionally and intellectually join in. And that after 30 seconds of presence, uh, it was just impossible to pretend anymore. You were just like right into it. And you would feel the ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness and like this desire to kill and torture and like that it really and the description is, is phenomenal. And so as I was reading that I I was thinking about what is happening on social media. And it's exactly that. We are living the two minutes hate. Every day, every time we're opening our app, we call, it's, it's full of inflammatory hashtags and it's full of fake accounts that push trends that are not really real and misinformation and bullying and right-wing conspiracy. And like, it's all in there. And then we get completely pulled in because it's 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 part of who we are. Like it, it just calls, it, it attracts our, our most primal instincts. Um and so here we are, we find ourselves, you know, retweeting articles, which are really uh, striking headline that we haven't read. We uh, find ourselves um, making judgments on people that we have never met, let alone talked to. Uh, and, and we find it absolutely normal. We right. we do that all the time, and so t- to me, there, and then so, so th- there's this thing, and then the second thing I'll, I'll be brief is, um, in 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 1984, Orwell describe uh, the new language that the party uses, which is called Newspeak, and Newspeak basically strip complete. The meaning out of language. It makes it impossible for people to have certain thoughts because they eliminate words. They basically reduce the number of words available to people. And the less words they have, the less feelings and ideas they have, and the less they're capable of processing and comprehending the world. And when, again, when you think about uh, what's happening on social media, it is exactly the same. You have hashtags. Uh, where the concepts are reduced to the absolute um, minimum. And you can't have a very complex idea developed through uh, Twitter or even Facebook or Instagram or or even YouTube, to be be honest. And so um, it's just like this social media are basically promoting these catchy, easy-to-understand ideas and trends and events and nuance is not rewarded. It is exactly like Newspeak in 1984. And that comes, once again, that comes down to the business model that, this, uh, that social media is is
2: built on. Right. And how much of it do we need to blame on the business? And how much do we need to blame on the structure within The country or the world, right? Like I think this has been an ongoing debate, which is if we could incentivize something other than profit at all costs, we could really have the flexibility to think differently. Um, And and I know this wasn't even always the case. Actually, I was watching. Gosh, now I'm getting them all confused. It was either the social dilemma or I watched another documentary called Capital. And it was talking about how, you know, it wasn't always the case really for even that long a period of time where we put, uh, you know, profit at all costs, even when you think about it. And I know in your book, you talk about, for example, pensions, like I'm 37, I'll never see a pension. It doesn't exist anymore for the most part. And I just, it it blows my mind how even 20 years ago, it was very common for people to feel like they'd be taken care of for their whole life. The one eighty we have done is so drastic. How did nobody and I mean the majority of people who would benefit from this how how did the uh the populace how did the the majority not have the ability to stand up and say "We're getting screwed here
1: so that I don't know I don't know how to answer that question what i know um what I know though is that i'm a capitalist at heart i do really believe that innovation um is driven by uh, what i call capitalist entrepreneurship it's this ability that we that we have uh and, and and we can have a lot of debates about do we all have the same chance of access to it I mean this is this is a massive massive topic and the answer is no we don't and that's a problem by the way uh, but disability is this opportunity that we have to go and build a business and innovate and make make money and make a living for us for families for our children or grandchildren and like that that's that is a very deep motivation uh, for a lot of people and I lived in in Russia and I lived in China and so I I look I know firsthand how it looks like when you do not have this strong capitalistic drive at the core of of the of the society, so I'm I'm a capitalist at heart, but I also very strongly believe maybe because I'm European, um, I also very much believe that we need balance. I think the the we have been very successful for quite some time in the West at least um, to find this balance. Between um, between this capitalist entrepreneurship I keep talking about and um, some kind of regulation, and it wasn't always an easy balance. There was quite a few bumps on the road. Uh, you know, it's 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 not. I'm not saying that it was like super easy and we we sell through it smoothly. But in general, what has made the West so successful, um, and what has what has allowed uh, Western society to uh, offer fairly good conditions of living to a majority of their people and again, they're definitely a problem, I'm happy to talk about it more, there are people who are left behind and that's a huge issue um, but what has allowed that to happen uh, i meaning the, the increase of standards of living, a general safe society where until, um, until a certain time, at least in Europe people were taken care of uh, in a, in a good way, it was just it was this balance, and what it feels to me, especially with big tech, is that this balance doesn't exist anymore. Um, for different reasons, big companies, big tech has become has become very powerful, very uh, very powerful, both from a financial perspective and from um, a policy perspective, and governments have gotten weaker. And in my view, when we do not have a clear separation of power and a clear allocation of role and responsibilities where the role of business is to innovate and make money or more specifically to innovate to make money uh, and the role of governments, at least the ones uh, which are democratically elected, their roles is to represent the citizen who elected them and go and implement the values and vision of society that this citizen elected them for if we don't have that balance if the government doesn't put uh, guardrails so that companies actually um actually respect these values and this vision of society that we decided we wanted as a collective then then we're in trouble and to me it feels like this is a lot What happened is that at some point we kind of decided that companies were so smart, so big, so powerful, so whatever, and government were so, and you put whatever adjectives you want next to it, like so inefficient, so bureaucratic, so blah, 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 uh, that somehow it was just okay. To to let the company run free. And and I'm really talking about technology. I, I'm not an expert about other other industry, but in the tech space, this feels so strongly what happened.
2: Yeah, it's it, it sounds like, again, that nuance got lost. Right. It's it just yeah. so feels like that. It's like, it's well, complex. it doesn't have to be one extreme or the other there's so many different ways we could go with this conversation and i want to talk about very i want to get very specific in your book here in a minute but you mentioned something that i have to talk about because anybody who's listened for any period of time knows you know i tend to lean more liberal uh, things like that but i am also a person this podcast is part of it who actively seeks the opposite opinion, and over time has continued to evolve those thoughts in a way that is far more centrist. And what I love that you said there is, I've seen what it's like when uh, the the country or the you know the population, whatever you want to call it, uh, doesn't have this capitalistic mindset at heart. And I think that that's something that is important to realize uh, because we can you know bash it all day, but we need to understand the benefits it's brought us. So could you actually really quickly uh, tell us a little bit about what your experience has been with that? What have you seen? What is the, what is the downfall if we try to tackle this from a governmental perspective, or we try to change the fundamental aspects of our economy?
1: Yeah. Uh, So again, to be clear, I'm basically advocating a third way. I'm, I'm, I don't believe that self-regulation works. Uh, I've never seen it working for any industry, so I don't believe that tech should uh, be different. Um, but I also don't believe that a very um, uh, very top-down, uh, very controlling government regulation works. Uh, because again, I, I've, I've seen firsthand what it does in countries which have been a uh, communist country for a really long time. Uh, whether they're still a communist country or not. And, and I, this is not the type of, of society that I aspire to be, uh, to be living in, even if I did live there for, for quite some time. Right. Um, right. I, I, before I answer, I just wanted to mention, like I do think that there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit among the population in Russia and in China. If, if anything, one of the most interesting experience for me Um, coming there as a Westerner was to actually meet uh, Russian and Chinese people and realize how driven they were to create new businesses. I think I'm more talking as a society, as a structure. This is a society that doesn't recognize civil liberties to the point, to the level where we are recognizing them in the West. This is a society where the role of the government is Um, is extremely important. There is very little that you can do without in one way or another getting approval from the government. And so that's what I'm talking about much more than like they don't have an entrepreneurial spirit. Actually, I think they do. I think just the, 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 the ecosystem in which they are uh, trying to develop this entrepreneurial spirit makes it significantly h- harder than it is in in the West, and even even specifically harder than it is in the U.S., which is a particularly entrepreneurial country. Right. Um, does that make sense?
2: It does. It makes perfect sense. I and I actually I, th- see again. This is one of those things. Are there a lot of people that disagree with this? Like this is what's crazy to me, right? No, we don't want communism. No, gosh, please don't have the government in charge so much that I have to ask them for all the things I have to do. But on the same token, like you cannot have essentially call it 10 people uh, worth, you know, uh, more money than probably the rest of the world. I mean, it's it it seems like why do we have to discuss it from these extremes? It seems like, okay, everybody believes this. Let's just get it done. It's so frustrating to me. It's coming through, obviously.
1: So I don't think everybody believes that, actually. Really? Uh, Yeah, no, I really don't. I think they are. I mean this may be extreme positions, but I, I I have met and I think especially in Silicon Valley, which has this libertarian um train of thought that is very present. Uh I have met people who believe that um wealthy people actually uh because they've been so successful and they build these amazing businesses, which they have, like we I'm not taking that away from them, uh know how to allocate money, know how to run projects much better than anyone else much, and certainly better than the government. Um, and so there's definitely and again, it's particularly prevalent in Silicon Valley, there is this general uh, idea shared by more people than you would think <laughs> that actually uh, the world would be so much better if it was run by, by entrepreneurs rather than by government. And all I'm advocating is that we need both. I think that right. entrepreneurs are amazing at solving a certain number of problems and at innovating and at finding solutions. But this is not their job uh, to implement, again, the values and the vision of life that we as a society have decided that we wanted. Um, right. And we just, we just need that balance. We, we need, it's, it's hard. Another way to say it is that it's hard to solve structural problems Um, societal structural problem with a, a corporate individualistic approach.
0: And now let's take a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Colorful days of fall are now upon us. Are your small businesses needs evolving? Despite the current uncertainty, having the right people on your team is like feeling the warmth of being wrapped up in a blanket. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. LinkedIn Jobs is fantastic because you can find the exact skills needed to fill whatever open roles you have. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. Getting started is now easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. Identify strong candidates with their efficient rating system to help quickly get your job in front of more qualified candidates. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash smart. Again, that's linkedin.com slash smart to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode.
2: Exactly. I mean, that, that, Again, I don't know how people argue against this, and I'm starting to realize maybe I need to have one of them on the podcast to change my perspective.
1: I mean, I've always- think you should totally invite a hardcore libertarian. I think there uh, are a few in Silicon Valley. I don't know if they would want to come on your road to uh, to speak on your podcast, but definitely. And and these are very smart people. They have a really, they have very good points. Um,
2: And that's the thing. You know, that's the thing. They do have good points. And I I feel like I'm smart enough to go, let me hear them honestly, and then let me modify my belief system accordingly. And if I do that continually throughout my life, I will end up with the clearest view I personally can build. But to your point, I always think about, you know, going to the moon, like that would not be an entrepreneurial endeavor because there was seemingly no direct, uh, you know, profitable outcome from that. However, as with many things that the government has invested in over the long term, it did leave to quality and life improvements, Uh, you know, a lot of technology and correct me if I'm wrong, please. But a lot of today's current technology, I feel, is built on the backbone of government investment, including the Internet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, this got ignored quite often (laughs) when you when you you talk uh precisely with, with some Silicon Valley uh, executive, which uh, promotes this idea of um, completely free entrepreneurship without any guardrail, without any limitation from the government, uh, I think sometimes they tend to forget that the internet actually was a governmental project. <laughs> and that there's a lot of things, a lot of the technologies that we are leveraging as uh as tech companies that actually come from government uh funds. Having said that, um I think the 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 devil is always in the details. Um the the, the issue is at what point does the government need to step out or step back and say, right. okay, we 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 finance the 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 hardcore infrastructure, we financed the hardcore R&D um, because we felt that it was very important for our nations, for uh, or for the world. Uh, but usually, it's pretty country-based. Um, and now we're going to give it to the entrepreneurs. Uh, and and we're going to let the entrepreneur run again within some guardrails around values that we want to we want to keep uh, we want to keep in in our in our country. I think that like finding this moment where like it's time for the government to step back and time for the entrepreneur to step in fully um, is is difficult, and I think that's the reason why there are so many debates about. Whether or not we should partner with the government, um, whether or not the government should be even allowed to regulate us, or which, I mean, as we've been discussing for the last twenty minutes, to me is always a little, a little surprising. Um, right. But yeah.
2: And and I appreciate that. I want to talk kind of more directly about your book. Um, and and I mentioned it in the intro, but trampled by unicorns, big tech's empathy problem, and how to fix it. The first thing is, I just want to know when you, when you wrote this, why you wrote it, you know, what, uh, what was the mission or what is the mission at heart? And then kind of piggybacking off of that, I think you probably very purposely chose the word empathy. I think there's a lot of ways you could go with, uh, your narrative. So I'm wondering why that word as it relates to tech.
1: Um, so to answer the first question, when I wrote the book, um, I really had two goals in mind. And and to start with, I didn't I didn't wake up one morning and and was like, okay, I need to I need to write a book like this is important or this is good for my career. It kind of happened organically. I've been talking about this topic of how to put humanity at the center of tech for quite some time. I've been uh, I've I've wrote my first article actually about this question of regulation, for example, and how to bring humanity back at the center. Partially for regulation six years ago for Wired, and so this has been a topic really that I've been talking a lot about, and so the book kind of happened uh, organically, and then one day I had a publishing deal in my hand, and I was like, oh, I guess now I really need to write a book. But so when I this, when I when I had this contract in my hand, I, I realized that there was really two things I wanted to achieve with the book. The first one was to try to give a more nuanced understanding of how we got where we are. I and what I mean by that is really talking about the impact of big tech on the on humanity, and and talking about the good because there's so much good that has been done, and I by the way, have so much good that can be done and will be done uh, with tech, but also the bad and the ugly. And I I was very frustrated because every time I would read an article in the press or I would read a book. It always felt incredibly one-sided. It would always describe tech either as completely amazing, life-changing, don't you dare criticize it, uh, or horrible. Like it's a bunch of um, evil people. Like all they're thinking about is making money and exploiting humanity. And, And I know these people, like I've been working with them for 15 years. It's like, no they're not I mean they're definitely not saints and they're not perfect but like they're not evil either and so I wanted to really um, explain why uh, why we are where we are why there is an, um, a deficit of empathy at the core of the tech ecosystem and really uh, talk about as I mentioned the good the bad and the ugly so that was the first the first uh, goal and then the second goal uh was to actually talk about solutions (laughs) because i i think that was another one of my frustrations i was reading all these articles and all these books that were describing how bad everything was it's like okay great okay we i think we all agree it's bad like okay got it what do we do about it because if the solution that you're offering is just let's just you know kill facebook it's just not practical it's not gonna happen uh if your solution is like let's have government in control of everything and like the government will validate every single tweet like that's not going to happen either that's not practical and so i wanted to have an in-depth thinking around what are the solutions that um that we can implement and there is no silver bullet it's not like you do this one thing and then that's it we solve the problem uh and there is not one single stakeholder that is going to solve everything i hear very often oh we just have to fire the ceo and then everything will be solved I, no I, I pretty much guarantee you that will not solve the problem that will solve a, a portion of the problem uh in some cases but like fundamentally it's a common effort it's the it's the CEO, it's the executive team, it's the employees, it's the investors, it's the board, it's the public market, uh, the stock exchange, it's the, 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 the investment banker, it's the, it's the regulators, it's the media, it's the users. It's like all of us, we need to actually think about what is it that we can do. And so the book, the second half of the book is basically structured that way. It's basically one chapter by stakeholder give or take. Uh, starting with the companies, because I, I really, really, really want to start with what we can do. Like the, the, the government should be what happens when we consult it ourselves, uh, not like the default solution. So I, it started with talking about what companies can do. And then it, it went into uh, the next circle. So like their investors, their board, Uh, and again the investment bankers the the stock exchange etc and then it went into government but to me it was really like here are all the things that we can do as tech executives and leaders and investors and like if we don't do any of that or if we do just 50 percent of that or whatever the percentage of what we're doing then then the government is going to need to step in because at some point like this is just not going into the right direction but that just should be like only what happened if we don't do it and and as i mentioned earlier i don't believe in self regulation i don't believe that we're going to implement 100% of what needs to be done so yes at some point the government will need to step in or does need to step in already now but it's it has to be seen as as like bridging the gap rather than replacing uh, replacing what companies can do, at least in my opinion. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that who will fundamentally disagree with me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to have these discussions yeah. with them in yeah, the but, coming months.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you are the one that has the airtime right now. So um, <laughs> on that note, we'll get into the empathy piece because I know I asked a, a double-sided yes. question or whatever. But, but as you mentioned that, I was thinking to your point, you said the government will have to step in because there's no such thing essentially or self-regulation won't work. And I completely agree with that because to your point, we can offer up solutions, but as the world is currently set, no tech company or few, I should say, are going to do anything unless it is financially motivated. So doesn't that mean essentially changing the system?
1: This is an extremely good question. So uh, I want to start by saying that empathy is not a weakness; it's a strength. And I'm ad, I'm not advocating for this company to become nonprofit. I actually believe that empathy uh, makes your business more successful and more sustainable in the long term. There was a, a study run a few years ago that looked at conscious companies, which is basically a synonym of, of empathy, empathetic companies, and that's um, that demonstrated that this company. Uh, outperform the S&P 500 by a factor of 10. And so, and when you think about it, it it makes complete sense. Like if you define corporate empathy as the ability for a company to understand and integrate into its decision-making the impact it has on people, uh, be its staff, its customer, or human society in general. Of course, that should make you a better company, and of course, that should make you more successful. Like because you're able to see around the corner, you're about to, you're about to think about the reaction of people and how you're going to manage all of that. So, like, of course, it should make business sense. Um, so again, empathy is actually good for business. Um, when it comes to um, Does that make sense? Maybe let me stop here just to make sure
2: that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, definitely makes sense.
1: Good. Uh, What was the second part of your question? Sorry.
2: Well, I was just wondering, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, gosh, it's it's really complicated. I can imagine how many times you've thought through all this in your mind. But we we know they can't self-regulate. We don't want too much government encroachment. Yeah, the system is currently set up for financially for stri- almost entirely financial uh, rewards. That that's where I was going. Right? Is is it yeah. the system at that point that needs to change?
1: So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that financial rewards are actually a key component of the system. Again, I'm I'm a capitalist. I think capitalism has proven to actually uh, bring quite a lot of benefits. I think where it's it's. It's not working is that push to the extreme without counter power uh, absolute capitalism capitalism without a conscience, um is a problem um and so this is where in my opinion there are some changes so l- let's take an example let's take uh the question of taxes which has been at least in europe a huge deal uh because tech companies uh through a whole system of tax optimization um, which, by the way, is perfectly legal, uh, these tech companies have found themselves paying little to no taxes in countries which are uh, very often one of the top, top, top markets. So they're making a lot of money out of Europe, um, and yet they pay very, very little tax. So because it's so it's legal, it's hard to say, oh, they're a really bad company. A lot of people say you can't accuse them of being bad companies. I'm like, okay. So first of all, I agree with the fact that the, the, the starting point should be a reform of the system or, or tax structure in general, uh, at least in the West, um, was built for a time and place and type of businesses which were so fundamentally different than the one we have right now, which was mainly based on geographical location, so physical presence. Um, it just doesn't work for for tech companies. It's all digital, and so it's, it's, it's just it's not adapted. Um, and so, of course, there is a need to change the system, uh, and that starts with the government, so that basically the tax system is adapted to the new type of activities, the new type of businesses that exist, because in my opinion, and I'm, I'm ready to debate anybody who disagrees with me, in my opinion, it is just not fair, and it is just not sustainable for a company to benefit from the infrastructure of a country from the market that exists in a country and not contribute to it by paying taxes. And maybe that makes me very European, maybe American thinks differently, but I no, think that wait. it is very no, very I, important.
2: <laughs> again, again, this is one of those issues where I'm like who doesn't believe that. So can oh, you give well, me I the feel- counter argument there because here again, w- as you're on the topic of taxes, look, I'm just going to call a spade a spade. I mean, the big, one of the big things that just came out, right, is Trump paid $750 in federal income taxes. And I saw this between people I know and love this Facebook exchange where it was like, oh my God, I can't believe Trump did this. And somebody else was like, why are we blaming him? Why aren't we blaming the system? And it's almost exactly what we're talking about. It's like, can you call him a bad person? Well, not if it's legal, which we'll get there at some point. But, yeah. So
1: I'm not going to comment on the, on the U S no, president, no. definitely out of my, my, uh, my expert zone uh, no, when you it don't comes need to, to companies. So right. um, yeah. So first there's definitely a system problem. So that needs to be, uh, that needs to be addressed. The OECD is working on it. Uh, I, I talk in the book about some of the progresses that are being made uh, in that direction. And so, yeah, it definitely needs to change. Um, having said that, I think that, uh, for example, the you could argue, if you're, if you're an executive, that using tax havens is morally challenging. So are you respecting the tax code? Yes, you are. Technically, you are, though, frankly, tax havens in general are forbidden. I mean, you're not supposed to use them. Uh, so you can, you can hide behind, behind the fact that it's like kind of a gray area and you kind of found, found a hole in the tax code. Or you can just say, look, what is the right thing to do? Like, what is it that if I want these countries that, are, uh, that I benefit from, that I, I grow my, my, my sales from, Like, what do I want for these countries to still be around 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now? Because, of course, for businesses, we want stability. uh, We want infrastructure. Like, we can't, we're not really good at doing businesses in countries which are not stable, which are not economically developed, which don't have infrastructure. So, like, for us, it's generally much better uh, when a country is a stable democracy. So... The, to answer your question about what are the counter arguments, so let, let me play the other side. The other side is, one, uh, tax dollars or tax euros are usually poorly used by government and companies are way better optimized to uh, to know where to put money. The response to that is that it remains to be proven. The investment in R&D has been going down and down uh, over the years, and right now... Um, when you look at how much money some of the biggest tech companies have on their bank account, Apple in the first place, um, I would debate whether that money is better on their bank account or uh, used to finance a certain number of governmental program to help uh, reduce poverty, increase education and literacy etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's usually the first the first point. The second point is uh, usually oh, but look they are creating so many jobs and creating um, and, and these jobs are great and then they're investing in infrastructure if it's Amazon they're building warehouses and and, and if it's others like they're creating all this uh, opportunity for entrepreneurs like great. But one doesn't exclude the other. Why can't you do one and the other? Like, why can't you uh, creating job is is phenomenal? We need that, but we also need the infrastructure. We also for for you to be able to hire these people, uh, for you to be able to have a, an educated workforce. You need these people to actually have access to good schools. You need these people to be able to go to the hospital when they're sick. You need these people to not be uh, really worried when they have when when. One one of their kids is sick uh, because there is a security social security system that will take care of that. You need these people to feel safe. You need these people to be able to drive to your place or take the, the public transport um, in the morning to go to your work. So it's phenomenal that we're creating so many so many jobs. Let's let's create even more, but let's not forget that to. Um, to create all this job and to make sure that all these people that we need to come to work um, for all these people to be there, we need governments to be able to do their job. How are they supposed to do their job if they don't have money to do it?
2: I mean, you're preaching to the choir on this one. I I think at the (laughs) end, what you are saying is the system has to change to some degree. Yes. Uh, But obviously we can't go to the extremes. what yes, is, and the and... companies
1: have to take responsibility and be accountable. I, I, I think we, we we need to be very careful of not putting everything on the plate of government. Because governments are not perfect. They're gonna make a ton of mistakes. They're making a ton of mistakes. But by the way, so does big tech. And somehow sure. we seem to have two standards where like it's okay for big tech to iterate and A B test their solution and, and you know, leak data and manipulate people's emotion and and screw up integration m a integration, like all of that we're like hey, okay it's fine the, the market will take care of it, but then when the government does that we're like oh this is this is such an example of how inefficient they are, and so right. I think we have to be very demanding when it comes to what governments uh, are supposed to deliver. I think we need to be uh, we need to have much higher expectation in terms of our government 's official literacy when it comes to technology it, it to me it is extremely scary to see how few um, officials or how few politicians actually understand tech. That's um, oh,
2: hilarious. The thing, the uh, when Zuckerberg yes. went, I mean...
1: <laughs> yes, we sell ads, Senator. Yes, they oh So we need to be extremely demanding. I'm, I'm not advocating for cutting them some slack on a constant basis. But at the same oh. time, it's it can't be all the government's problem. Like these companies... Uh, these companies also need to think about where they want to be not five years from now, not 10 years from now, but 50, 100 years from now. There's no such a thing as building a company for the long term if you don't care about the world around you, if you never take accountability for the bad impact that you're having on the world. It doesn't exist that way. At some point, it comes back to bite you in the neck. And so it's just about... Having the long-term view, which I understand when you're a public company, is a little challenging, um, mm. but I still think it's possible. Like There are leaders who have demonstrated, I think one of the most uh, recent ones would be Satya Nadella, um, who have demonstrated that you can lead a company with empathy, you can make big bets uh, for the future, you can absolutely think about how your company is impacting the world, and it's good for business.
2: Who Who is that person you just mentioned?
1: Satya, Satya Nadella. Who's that? uh, is the CEO of Microsoft.
2: Oh, okay. Sorry. I I mean, I know it's your world, but you know,
1: I'm so sorry. I should have. Yeah.
2: No, no. I mean, there's probably people out there laughing at me right now. You know, as you talked about it, it reminded me of two stories, one nonfiction, one fiction. So one is the, the real story of Henry Ford, right? So built the car and realized people can't afford it. So If I have this product and I want people to buy it, I need them to be able to afford it. Therefore, he paid his workers more. They started buying the car.
1: Exactly. Good
2: for business. Here's another one. Okay. I use this story with my children all the time, but for those who haven't seen it, the movie, the Lorax, right? So, you know, and and Sneeds and all that stuff or Sneeds or whatever it is, right? He goes around chopping down all the trees make some fantastic, uh, you know, uh, need out of it or whatever it was. Um, But eventually you get to the point where you exhaust your resources and you close up shop. So the argument becomes the, you know, the better you think about it, the the more integrated or I guess I should say empathic, if you will, right? You can be as a company, it might lead to long-term success. And I think the last question I have though, is as you highlighted, I don't see that happening on its own. Right. I don't see. um, I mean, you've got CEOs who are like, all I got to do is work here for five years. I don't need to think about 30. So so leave us with that kernel of hope on, um, you know, big tech becoming more empathic, maybe on their own or with a little bit of government help.
1: So definitely was a little bit of a government help. There's no doubt in my mind. We have okay. talked about that self-regulation. I don't I yeah. don't believe in it. It never worked. I don't see it working right now. Having said that, look, I'm a I'm an optimist. Uh, when when I look at uh, not all CEOs are there for five years. Uh, they are like if you if you look at Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. Uh, I don't think he took the job thinking he would be there only for five years. Uh, and I think he has a fairly strong moral compass. It doesn't mean that I agree with all the decisions. And I, I think Apple should be playing a significantly stronger role uh, in driving empathy uh, in the tech industry. And I think they're not doing enough. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't accuse him of being short term and just like, you know, thinking five to five years down the line and, and be gone. I think if you, yeah, you're
2: right. Yeah. If yeah. you
1: look at someone like Brian Chesky, uh, the CEO of Airbnb, Um, who is one of the very few leaders I know who I have heard saying the word sorry when his company screwed up. And that seems like a minor detail, but to me, it goes a long way to talk about empathy, to to demonstrate empathy, because I don't expect any of these companies to be perfect. Like they're doing things that nobody has ever done before. So of course, they're going to make mistakes. Of course, there's going to be a problem along the way. But it comes down to accountability and being able to say, we tried that, we failed miserably. We had a really bad impact on our workers or, uh, or, or customers or community or country, whatever that is. And we're really sorry and we're going to do everything we can to fix that now. Um, I think, so Brian Chesky is definitely not at Airbnb for, for five years. He's, he's probably going to uh, grow that child of his uh, for the rest of his life. And so they are definitely leaders who think about the long term. We we, uh, we need more of those. And I also think that um, to remain in the positive, I see a lot more tech workers who really went into tech with these big ideals and this idea that they were really helping to make the world a better place, which is the the, the phrase that we, we keep using at Noseum. Um, and I think they still believe in that. They still go to work in the morning. Some of them may be doing it for the money, uh, but I think a large number of them are really going there because they believe in innovation. They believe that technology will make the world a better place. And, and there is a increasing self-awareness that it's probably not as positive as they thought it would be. And that maybe we need to slow down a little bit and think a little more and be more inclusive and, and not uh, take for granted that we are a meritocratic environment because by the way, we're not, we're not always. And so I, I see more and more of these questions. I see, Uh, there has been a few example over the past few months of fairly senior executives who left Facebook or who left Amazon saying, I don't agree with what my my company is doing. And so again, maybe I'm overly optimistic. Maybe, maybe I'm the one being naive. We talked about it at the beginning of our conversation, but I, I, I believe that a lot of these people really want to do good and that they are trying. Now, is it going to be enough? Probably not, <laughs> which is why I think that it's not just up to the companies. And by the way, it's not just the governments. It's also the board and the investors. Like The world would be a very different place. The tech world would be a very different place if uh, investors were asking very different questions from their companies and were tracking very different KPIs, not just the financials. Uh, the world would be a very different place if the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ had different criterias in terms of what what is uh considered a company a great corporate governance uh, the world would be a very different place if the media were reporting in a different way uh what is happening inside inside tech companies and and by the way, there are some journalists who have done an amazing job at reporting some of the things that tech does and and part of the reason why we 're having this conversation with you about the good, the bad, and the ugly, is because there are some journalists that exposed the bad and the ugly quite in detail, but there's still yeah. this tendency to put tech on a pedestal or like to tear them down and be like, they're completely evil and let's, let's just destroy them. Uh, the users, like I, I continue to be, uh, frankly, a little saddened by uh, the, sometimes the position of victims that a lot of users are putting themselves in. Uh, If you, there are alternatives and I'm not advocating for people to use alternatives all the time. Like I totally understand if you have a newborn and you buy diapers by the truck, I get it that having an Amazon Prime subscription is a life changer. And I'm not telling you, get rid of your Amazon Prime subscription and go and buy it every, every weekend. But when you buy a book, if you're in the U.S., you could buy it on bookshop.org. It's it's uh, the same book. It's the same price. Sometimes it's cheaper, and it goes directly to your local bookstore. Okay, and the delivery will probably take you 24 hours more, 48 hours more. Most of us, when we buy a book, we don't need it like tomorrow. So there are there are alternative things that we can do as users to um, to promote a more empathetic, more inclusive. Uh, inclusive tech and then yes and then and then there is government which again in countries where they are democratically elected their job is to make sure that the the values that we elected for uh, we elected them for are implemented and so they have a huge role in making sure that these companies follow uh a certain number of rules uh and do not destroy the the society that we want
2: well, and, and I really appreciate that perspective. It's why I do this show. I don't think you're being overly naive. I think I was probably being overly pessimistic. I mean, as soon as it's just fascinating to watch in real time my thinking, right? It's like as soon as I said, you know, I, I really believe strongly are most CEOs just want to get in, make a bunch of money. They're not there that long. And I know that for if you took all industries, the average time that a CEO is in their position is actually only a few years. Yes. However, that said, as soon as you said it, let's think of the top tech companies, right? You've got Facebook, right? You've got Amazon, you've got Apple, I mean, you've got Airbnb, you've got, well, Uber, that's one story. But point <laughs> being, right? Point being, yeah. you've got some stability there. So yes. then that changes perspective, right? And then and I know we're at time, but I, I have one more question for you, which is let's take a Zuckerberg Or uh, let's take a... Gosh, I don't want to use... I'll use Bezos. Let's take Zuckerberg. Let's take Bezos. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They are with their company. They have a long-term vision. Yet, we could say that those two companies, although providing a service that many of us enjoy, are doing a lot of harm. Yes. So how do we then square this idea of they're in it for the long haul. They, they don't have malintent, yet their actions don't really support the fact that they are thinking about the good of the average Joe.
1: So, look, I'm not in the head, so it's, it's hard for me to say like exactly what's happening up there.
2: You're not. Um, Come on! A, I a, thought that's what you were. I mean, you were the insider. <laughs> it would be.
1: It would be fascinating. Honestly, I would pay a lot of money to be in Mark Zuckerberg's head for like an hour. <laughs> like it would be. It would be such a fascinating uh, place to be. Um, and Jeff Bezos, same thing. Um, I would say, it's a. It's a complicated question. I think they, there's a part which is isolation like at some point you know when you've been a billionaire for a really long time and you've been focused on one company for a really long time I wonder how much you lose touch I think there has been a question of um how much you um you really you you, how much you're ready to move away from absolute Uh, absolute beliefs Uh, the the Silicon Valley is very very driven by strong absolute like freedom of speech is absolute Uh, like nothing can go against freedom of speech and every time I hear that from Silicon Valley I'm like you know I come from a country I actually come from a continent uh, that has banned uh, any Nazi related speech and I would argue that France, Germany, the UK are pretty Free speech-focused countries, right? All right. Yet we have made it very clear and totally illegal. Like you can go to jail uh, if if you are supporting and, and disseminating uh, Nazi messages. So uh, it's just one example, but I, I think that Silicon Valley likes to think very much in like big, bold bets and absolute um, absolute values. And again, back to something we discussed before reality is a little different. Reality is a little gray. It's not perfectly black and white. And so there is this question of like, there needs to be, there needs to, you need to adapt to the reality of the world. And I don't know when you've been detached from the world for so long. uh, And when you really want, uh, really believe in absolute, uh, absolute values, like whether you can actually, um actually really um change and adapt to what the world is telling you i don't know the future is gonna be very interesting to observe my My, my guess is that it's it's gonna take uh quite significant external pressure in the case of these two companies uh for them to change um uh, because right. they are very very powerful financially and and otherwise very powerful right. and um, yeah, their leaders have been there for a really, really long time. And so there's uh, there's probably a need for external input.
2: Well, as you said, it is going to take a long time. It is going to be interesting. And as somebody who has two young kids, I mean, that's why I've, I've noticed myself really getting passionate about this, even on this on this interview, uh, surprisingly so. But I, I think that was one of the biggest takeaways going back to the social dilemma was just the impact on Kids. I mean, I didn't grow up with yeah. social media, and honestly, I'm thankful. And that's sad. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really sad as a parent. So there's I say a reason. That.
1: There's a reason why a lot of tech executives don't allow their kids to touch devices until they're exactly. 12. So exactly. They're
2: yeah. And so, so I I say that because it takes people like you, and and that's why you know writing this book. I, I I think it is a it's a tough challenge because. Um, Sometimes, and I'm sure you even had this thought like, I can put it out there, but uh, what's it going to do? Is it actually going to change anything, etc.? But it is this collective force. It's the documentaries, it's the book. So,
1: yeah,
2: that being said, brand new book, Trampled by Unicorns. I love the name, by the way. It's like, it's fantastic. Trampled Thank by you. Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. Mile, um, Thank you so much for your time. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with or where they can find you or what you're up to these days?
1: Um, the only thing I would say is that in general, we don't, what I've been arguing very strongly uh, for is that we don't need less, empath- less tech. We need more empathetic tech. And so it's not about killing this company, destroying them and having government regulating them out of existence. It is really about uh, making sure that we drive more empathy in this business whether we do that because we work at these companies we invest in this company we elect people voting is critically important i i'm i'm sure i'm sure we we will all agree with that uh we elect people that can actually go and 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 help drive that agenda um there, there's tons of things that we can do uh we need to but we need to really have this conversation and this this trade offs
2: well, and that's what we're doing. We're having the conversations. All right, Milo. Well, I know you have a dinner party to get to or a, <laughs> yes. a dinner event of some sort. Uh, but I want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on, trying to decipher and break down such a complicated topic. And thanks for the work you do. My
1: pleasure.
0: That was Mayel Gave talking about her new book, Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. And her book can be found wherever books are sold. All right, let's jump into the quick housekeeping items here. If you ever want to reach out to Smart People Podcast, just shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're looking for ways to help the show, you can always head over to wherever you downloaded the episode and leave us a rating or review. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com/smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. And a sincere thank you to everyone who downloads and listens to the podcast make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.